down, we will pick up where we left off. So by necessity, um, I will spend a little bit longer just giving you a catch-up. Um, even for those of you who come regularly on, on the evening services, um, you may need a little reminder of where we're up to and what's happened, the story so far. Um, and so we'll do that, and then we'll press on in chapter 25, and we were up to verse 6, which actually sounds like the middle of nowhere, but it's a, it was a fairly good place to have a break. So we'll, uh, we'll uh, pray, and then we'll, we'll go through what, and, uh, our what we've done so far, and then we'll get started. So let's pray. Father, I pray that tonight you would help us all. A long day, we're probably tired, and uh, I know I am, and I just ask, Lord, that we will be able to concentrate, and we will be able to um, focus on your word, that we would see you ever more clearly, and, and seeing you, we'd be transformed. We would, we would uh, see your word the glory that is to come, and Lord, that it might impact our lives in the here and now. May you be glorified in all of this, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Book of Isaiah. 25, oh, 24 and a half chapters we've done so far. So let's recount them all in five or ten minutes. No problem. The first five the first five chapters of Isaiah were purely foundational, theological foundations. Think the, the function that John's prologue has on the book of John. It's similar kind of thing. Key themes, uh, key issues, key theological points that will come up again and again throughout the book of Isaiah. In fact, we'll see some of that evidence uh, here tonight. And so the first five chapters basically were a roller coaster. It began at the bottom, Israel, you're idolatrous and you are condemned. And then into chapter 2, we have, but there will be redemption, you will be glorified. And then back to 3, but right now you're judged. And then chapter 4, but you will be glorified. And then chapter 5, but right now you are judged. It's kind of that kind of roller coaster speaking in sequence of the, the condemnation to the nation of Judah, specifically the southern kingdom of Israel, um, for their sin of idolatry and their rebellion against God, and then God's faithfulness in redeeming them. And then their condemnation and God's faithfulness and their condemnation and God's faithfulness. And, and so that, would, that went on. And then in the end of chapter 5, we have the great condemnation of them that, that really is, is, their, um, is seen in the song of the vineyard. And the song of the vineyard is, is like a parabolic song that Isaiah tells, which is foundational for so many other passages in Scripture, where God says, look, I planted a vineyard. I planted a vineyard and I gave it good soil. I put a wall around it. I did everything that was needed to produce a good harvest. And then when the harvest came, I just got sour grapes. I just got rotten grapes. I didn't have a harvest worth having. So if you were a farmer in that situation, why would you bother maintaining a wall? And why would you bother looking after the soil? And so God says, I won't do any of those things anymore. When you had everything you needed to produce good fruit, you produced bad fruit. So I'm not going to make any effort to give you the, the conditions to produce good fruit. In fact, I won't even let there be rain anymore. That you are going to be condemned. And that then leads into the, the climactic 
uh, judgment that we'll come back to a bit later in chapter 5 that's so foundational for the book. And, and with that foundation, we then hit Isaiah chapter 6, and we have that famous passage that really is the beginning of the story. After that theological prologue, kind of giving us these key themes and what's going on in the book, we really have then the beginning of the story, where Isaiah has a vision. And we'll be talking about vision again tonight as well, so this, this recap is probably quite helpful. And Isaiah has his famous vision. He sees a vision of God high and lifted up in the temple. And one thing that we saw in chapter 6 is that some people misunderstand where that vision is. The, the temple is not on, in heaven, but rather specifically the temple is on earth. Chapter 2 and chapter 4, part of the reason for that prologue is that they saw these time, this time of redemption, this time of glory, this time when God has completed the work with his people and they have been redeemed. And in each of those times, it's on the earth. And it's the temple on the earth. So Isaiah, having had that theological foundation, Isaiah sees what it's going to be like on that day in the temple on earth. And he's kind of taken in this vision to the presence of God in the temple. And he sees the holiness of God and he realizes that he is not fit to be there. He is a man of unclean lips and he has a, he's in the, the people of unclean lips. And he is rightly going to be condemned. And then the angel of judgment, the, uh, the seraphim, approaches him with a hot coal from the altar and you know what's going to happen he's going to receive judgment but as the coal touches his lips the man of unclean lips becomes clean that God's holiness doesn't condemn him it actually redeems him and there in a nutshell we have the purpose and the story of Isaiah and so Isaiah having seen this vision God says who shall I send? Isaiah says, well, you can send me. And so he sends Isaiah and he gives him this mission. And he says, I want you to go and preach to these people so that they don't repent. I want them to stay blind. I want them to stay deaf because they're the vineyard. They're not to receive rain. They're not to receive any conditions that can produce good fruit. Because I do not want them to repent because the judgment is necessary for them. And so much of Isaiah then goes on from that point to talk about these twofold things. The righteous judgment of God against Judah and how God will ultimately use that judgment to redeem Israel. And ultimately, ultimately, we're going to see that the Messiah himself is the one who will suffer so that that redemption can happen for his people. Now, once we've had that introduction, we get into chapter 7, and chapter 7 through 12 is what's often called as the book of Emmanuel, because it immediately deals with what is going to happen to bring them from this place of rebellion to the place of redemption. And it starts with a prophecy concerning a virgin who will give birth. And there is going to be a child, a miraculous child that is born. By the time we get through the book of Emmanuel, and we've been through chapter 9, and we've seen that he's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, terminology that is only used of God, that there is going to be a child who is born of the woman, not any woman, the woman, the virgin, the seed of the woman, the one that was promised from Genesis 3, 16, 15 rather. 
that the one that was promised, there is going to be this child who will be man, born of the woman, and yet at the same time will be mighty God. Fully human and fully God. Not a New Testament concept, let alone a church concept. It is an Old Testament concept that this coming Messiah would be both man and God. And so the book of Emmanuel introduces the coming Messiah. Now, then at that point, when we hit chapter 13, we come to the judgment of the nations. And we had a long section from chapter 13 through 19, where there were oracles against all the various nations that have been enemies of Israel. Now, there may be judgment coming against Israel, but as we mentioned briefly this morning as well, that there is always judgment against those who come against Israel as well. And 13 through 19, those chapters dealt with the final judgment of those nations who were, have historically been opposed to Israel that God will do on the final day. And one of the key themes that was picked up in the first five chapters was that God is going to have his day. And because of the legal nature of those first five chapters, God's making a case against Israel legally, you could almost parallel it with the modern expression that God will have his day in court. Of course, his day in court, he will be the judge. And he will be the one that will execute judgment. And his day is the day of the Lord. Regulars will know that I'm not fond of the often used Christian expression, Lord's Day, referring to Sunday. If the Lord's Day is today, it really did come like a thief in the night because I missed it. The Lord's Day is the day of the Lord. It's the day of judgment. It's this eschatological end time, final day judgment that Isaiah speaks of again and again and again. And all of these nations will be judged in the last days. There is a brief break in chapter 20 where Isaiah comes again historically to a point in time and then he kicks off again with oracles in chapters 21 through 23 now dealing with some of the same nations again but seemingly dealing less with the final judgment but with more immediate judgment. Judah wanted to hear a message that was they're going to be judged soon and then you can tell us about the end times. Isaiah does it the other way around. He says, let me tell you what's going to happen to them in the end. And now we know who's in charge. Now we know who's sovereign. Now we know who's going to have the last word. Let's see what he's going to do with them in the meantime. And we have more near-term judgment of them. And that then brought us to chapter 24. And chapter 24 to chapter 27 is the, the section that we're in the midst of. Chapter 4 through chapter 27 is a section that is often termed as Isaiah's little apocalypse. It is the basis for the book of Revelation. If you understand Isaiah's apocalypse in, content, in context, rather, then the Revelation you're going to see again and again and again, and we've already noted that. And without going through it all, because obviously we want to get on with where we're at, chapter 24 ended... Uh, so this is two sermons ago in Isaiah. It ended with the expression uh, in chapter 24 and verse 21 I'm reading. On that day, we're back to the day of the Lord again, end time judgment. On that day the Lord, Yahweh, capital letters, will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. So there is going to be a final end time judgment that will be upon leaders, both earthly leaders on the earth and heavenly leaders in the heavens. The, the demons 
and the, the kings that they would influence on the earth. And God will judge them all. The punishment here that is referred to in most versions, God will punish, the Lord will punish. That is not the usual Hebrew word for punish. And it means that God will determine their fate. It's more of a term of judgment. But obviously in this context, the judgment is going to be one that is going to involve punishment. But it is a judging of them. And it says they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison. And after many days, they will be punished. And there we see judgment, humans, spirit beings. And they will be locked up. And then after many days, this is afterwards, this is after they've been judged, what's going to happen? They're going to be judged again. They're going to be punished all over again. You say, hold on a second, didn't that already happen? It happened. They were, they, the judgment was decreed. The fate was settled for a while. And then it was settled all over again. And more permanently. And where do we see this in the book of Revelation? We see Satan being bound in the pit for a thousand years. We see judgment upon him and upon angels and upon humans. We see judgment in the book of Revelation at the end time. And then what happens? There is a kingdom. And then after many, many days, a thousand years to be precise, he's loosed for a little while. And then the fate is determined once again. There is a final judgment for all time. The second resurrection and the final death and the death of death. And so Isaiah is dealing with all of his real end time stuff. And he's giving us little sneak peeks, if you were, of, of what's going to happen that then John fleshes out for us far more in the book of Revelation and other prophets in the Old Testament and Jesus in the Gospels. But we see the, the elements of that. And then chapter 24 ended with the moon will be confounded, the sun will be ashamed for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. And we have this reference to his elders. We'll probably come back to that in a couple of weeks' time. But his glory will be before his uh, leaders, not the ones who've been judged earlier in the chapter, but the ones who are redeemed. But notice the moon will be confounded, the sun will be ashamed. Where do we see that concept? We see it in the idea of the new heaven and the new earth, where there will be no moon and no sun because of the glory of Christ will light the earth. And so Isaiah... It's often said that Isaiah really didn't see much of the new heaven and the new earth. He just, he just saw the kingdom and that was as far as he saw. But I think Isaiah does see an eternal state. But he sees it ever so briefly. Just a verse here and a verse there. There's a little glimpse. Isaiah's main focus for sure is the kingdom. But after many days, there will be a further setting of one's fate. And then... There will be, end of chapter 24, this eternal state with, no, with the, sun being, uh, the moon being confounded, the sun ashamed. And God will be there. Now I want you to notice, before we hit chapter 25, we've almost done with our recap. But I need to just go a little bit slower now, because there's stuff that's going to be relevant for tonight. Okay? The Yahweh of hosts, he reigns. Where does he reign? He reigns on Mount Zion. So we're talking here of the eternal state. The eternal state of the earth, the new heavens and the new earth, and God is reigning, and he is in a specific place. Jesus was in the beginning with God, right? But chapter 1 and verse 14 of John, he became flesh. 
And Jesus became man in a point in time, and he will remain man for eternity. And so he will be in one place on the earth. In his deity, he is obviously omnipresent. But in his humanity, he will be in one place, and he will be there glorified on Mount Zion. On that mountain. That's important. It's going to become important in a minute. And that mountain is in Jerusalem, and there will be glory there before his elders. I will just emphasize that. You will note, oh, he's emphasizing it again. That's going to become relevant. Yes, it will. You wait and see. And that then tells us what the eternal state is going to be like, and he ends chapter 24. When we come to chapter 25, I do not believe that we are in the eternal state anymore. As I said, what Isaiah will do is he will say, kingdom, 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 little glimpse of the eternal state, and kingdom, 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 kingdom. So he's kind of talking about the final end time judgment, and then the kingdom comes, and then we get these little one of two verse glimpses of the eternal state. But once that's been done, I think that he's kind of gone through his story in chapter 24. He's talked about the judgment, he's talked about the kingdom, and um, what's going to happen, and then he gives us a little sneak peek of what's going to happen after the final, final judgment at the end of the kingdom. So when we come to chapter 25, O Yahweh, you are my God, I will exalt you, and I will praise your name, we have praise that comes at the beginning of the kingdom. We are back at the beginning of the kingdom. Now it's important that we see this, and we see this distinction, okay? Because Isaiah does this routinely. He does it routinely. He will jump from time to time on the basis of themes, on the basis of development. The the most famous one is Isaiah 61, where he says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, has anointed me to bring good news to the captive, to the the poor. Uh, Let me me read it precisely. I'm going to say it wrong and off the top of my head, and then somebody will criticize me. So I'll say it right. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor. Those words should be familiar to you, even outside of Isaiah 61, and verses 1 and a a half verses there. Why? Because Jesus quotes them in Luke chapter 4. He stands up in a synagogue, and he reads from this portion of Isaiah. And then he sits down, which is unheard of. Because all of the readings that will be done in the synagogues were at minimum of three verses, if not more. And he's read one and a half verses. And he sits down, which is what they did to teach, rather than me standing up to teach, they sit down to teach. And he would sit down and all the eyes were on him, and he said, today this is fulfilled, right here in your midst. Why did he not read more? Because Isaiah goes on, and the day of vengeance of our God, the day of the Lord. Was the day of the Lord there in Jesus' day? Uh -uh Uh-uh-uh. It wasn't. So what Isaiah is doing in Isaiah 61 is he's talking about the first coming and the second coming, literally in the middle of a sentence. Why would he be so confusing? Well, there's all sorts of reasons for that, and they get long and they get confusing and they get debatable. Many have suggested that part of the reason that prophecy isn't as 100% clear as we would like it to be was for the very purpose of confusing the demonic realm so they would not know God's plan so that they would send Christ to the cross. And I think there's merits to that argument. And Paul makes a similar case in 1 Corinthians. But let me simply say right now that I think the more important reason as far as we're concerned is that Isaiah is simply teaching about the ministry of the Messiah. 
and the ministry of the Messiah goes on for a long period of time. His incarnation was 2,000 plus years ago, and now it continues. And it will go on. And it will go on to the day of the Lord. And he will end the day of the Lord with his return. And he will establish his kingdom. And so the, the ministry of the Messiah is ongoing. And Isaiah is simply talking about the ministry of the Messiah. That's his context in chapter 61, right? So we see Isaiah kind of going from one time zone to another. And you have to pay close attention to see the breakdown in chronology. So what I want you to see is in chapter 24, he has talked about judgment, day of the Lord, and then there will be a judgment, and there will be the imprisonment of those who are judged. And then, after a period of time, there will be another judgment. So we have a period of time where God's enemies are imprisoned. That allows for the kingdom. And then there will be a final judgment, and God will be reigning in Zion. Now we come to chapter 25, and I think that we're back to rejoicing at the beginning of the kingdom, because as we saw in chapter 25, verses 1 to 5, which is where we were three months ago, the last time we were in Isaiah, that there was a reference here to crumbling cities being destroyed. At the end of the time of the day of the Lord, the enemies of the Lord are crushed. The ruthless nations being referenced here seem to be linked with the leading nation of Babylon. That term ruthless is repeated three times in chapter 25. And Isaiah used it previously in his previous references to Babylon. And so the big daddy of all nations at the end times, Babylon, is going to come down with the other nations around them. And there will be great rejoicing as they come down. And chapter 25, first five verses, is really um, almost a taunting, like a na 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 na, you know, you've lost. And it ends in chapter uh, 25, verse 5, so the song of the ruthless is put down. So the song of rejoicing ends with a declaration that the, the song of the ruthless nations has been put down. The day of the Lord has happened. God has judged his people. God has now judged the nations at the end of the judging of his people, which we've spoken about previously in Isaiah. And now there is rejoicing by the redeemed as the time of celebration begins at the beginning of the kingdom. All right? That brings us to chapter 25, verse 6. It was a bit of a catch-up. I think after three months we needed it. Okay? So, as we come into verse 6, we know where we are in the thinking of Isaiah. We're dealing with end times. We're dealing with day of the Lord. We're dealing with the kingdom. We're dealing with the judgment of his enemies. And we're dealing with the rejoicing that happened. And this rejoicing that we've seen in song in the first five verses continues into verse 6. And that's about as far as we're going to get tonight. Okay, because verse 6 and verse 7 are so rich that we are going to be doing a lot of intertextual jumping around. Let's have a look at what happens in verse 6. In verse 6, on this mountain, Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. Okay. That is as far as we're going to get today, if we can do all of it. There is richness in the feasting, and there is richness in the verse. 
Okay, so let's have a look at it closely. Closely. Firstly, on this mountain. What is this mountain? Those of you who have learned to do your Bible studies, asking all those questions, what, why, where, who, when, all of that, you know, you're looking around. What mountain has been referenced in the immediate context? I took my time, I made sure you saw it. End of chapter 24, Mount Zion. He gave us a sneak peek of how, after the judgment that comes after the judgment, there's going to be this period of... Um, this, after this period of, of peace, there's then a further judgment, and then there is this eternal state where the moon and the sun are drowned out by the glory of God. And the God's glory will be there in Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And that's where it's going to be. So the place of eternal glory on the earth is going to be on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Okay? That's the place of eternal glory. Where are we now in verse 6? We know from the first five verses that we're back to a time of rejoicing at the end of the conquering and the judging. So in the context of chapter 24, we're after the first bit of punishing, the first determining of fate, not the second one. So we're not looking at eternal glory here. We're looking at the kingdom. We're looking at the time where that first determining of fate, that first punishment has happened. And that's what they're rejoicing over. So what is the connection that he's making? Why did he let us have a little glimpse of eternal glory? Because he's showing us that when the kingdom begins, there will be rejoicing in the presence of God on the same place where eternal glory will dwell. In other words, the kingdom is the beginning of glory that after a brief respite, after a second judgment, will become the place of eternal glory. That's the connection he's making. So we need to understand that this feast is happening on this mountain. And the Yahweh of hosts is going to make a feast for all peoples. Now we're going to come back to these expressions in a minute. But it is a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, aged wine well refined. The food and the wine is repeated twice. It's It's emphatic. These are expressions of, that are superlative. They are talking about the nature of this feast, and this is the feast that we'll see in the kingdom. We see that contextually in Isaiah. You don't need a New Testament to come to that conclusion. This is a feast that will be one of great, great rejoicing. So what's the feast about? Well, for that, we're going to have to go backwards. What is feasting about? Let's go back to the book of Genesis. And let's go specifically, and I want to do this briefly. I could spend many weeks doing this. Um, I want to give a shout out to my friend, uh, Harold Gandhi, who wrote an entire thesis uh, on feasting, which he shared with me, which has been really helpful. And I would love to spend the next 10 weeks teaching it, but I'm going to behave myself and just dip in briefly. But we need to understand that there are themes attached to the concept of feasting. Themes that will hold true to this day. When we look at, you look at some sort of medieval movie, obviously I don't mean a movie that was made in medieval times, they didn't have the technology. I mean a movie set in medieval times. Then when you have a great feast going on, who's in charge of the feast? That'll be the king. The king is the one who has feasts. 
And so one aspect of feasting is that feasting is something that's done by rulers and by kings. I could give you many, many references in the Old Testament. And you, if you were going to Genesis 37, you just stay there. But I'm going to read to you from 1 Samuel uh, 25 and verse 36. Uh, it says that Abigail came to Nabal and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. In other words, he had a feast in his house and it was such a spectacular, great feast, it was like the feast of a king. So feasts are something that we can all do, but a great feast, a truly great feast, is something that a king does. And he had a great feast in his house, and ten days later he's dead. There's elements of God bringing down the proud going on there. So one element of feasting is one of, of power and of kingship. But I think a greater one is one of fellowship. And we see that in the story of Joseph quite clearly. So it's a, we could point to many examples in scripture, but this is a fairly good one. In Genesis 37 and verse, um, let's pick up in verse, let's pick up verse 18. I presume that most of you will know the story of Joseph and his brothers. They see him come from afar and he came near to them and they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. We will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands by saying, let us not take his life. Reuben said, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness. But do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. In other words, Reuben's plan was, we'll throw him in the pit. They want to kill him, but we don't, we should, we, that's wrong. We mustn't kill him. So let's throw him in the pit, and then later I'll be able to rescue him and bring him back. That was Reuben's plan. And by the way, don't miss the irony here of the fact that pit throughout much of scripture is a synonym of Sheol, the place of the dead. They want to kill him, and Reuben says, I'm with you. Let's put him in the pit, so to speak. There's, there's, a, there's an irony going on there. Um, so Reuben's plan is to later rescue him. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him in the pit, and the pit was empty and there was no water in it. We'll come back to that in a moment. And then they sat down to eat. Why do we have potlucks at church? After church, once a month, coronavirus notwithstanding, we will gather after church on a Sunday morning. It's something that we introduced soon after I came here. Jenny and I were keen to do that. Because eating together is a time of fellowship together. There is something that unites us and brings us together. If we go to someone's house and we have a meal with them, there is, this, there is a uniting that happens. There is the implication of fellowship. If somebody is not in fellowship with us, then we don't eat with them. That, that's, that's something that is almost, you know, unanimously seen that, you know, through many cultures, through all time, that somebody comes to your house and you prepare a meal and you welcome them in. And some cultures are much better than this than others, um, even to this day. But, but that's the kind of idea that with food and with feasting, there is attached to those F's, another F, the F of fellowship. And we see that clearly with Joseph and his brothers here, in that the Bible is showing us that picture, that Joseph is in a pit, and he doesn't even have water. And the brothers who have excluded him from fellowship, they eat together. 
Now that alone may not be enough to convince you, but if you go a little bit further on, you'll come to chapter 43, and all of Joseph's roller coaster of a life has happened, and the brothers have come to him, and they don't know who he is. And um, Joseph, let's pick up in Joseph in verse 26, we pick up. Chapter 43 and verse 26. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with him, and they bowed down to the ground. How, how the tables have turned. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, Your servant, our father, is well and he is alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and he saw Benjamin, that's who they'd gone back for, his mother's son. And they said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. And then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep and he entered into his chamber and he wept there. Can you see the parallels, the direct contrast with what's gone before? They put their brother in a pit and he gets them to bring his brother to him that they might all be reunited. And he weeps because compassion, the one thing that was missing when they put him in the pit. Compassion is in his heart. He is the antithesis in the way he treats them compared to how they treated him in chapter 37. So what do you think he's going to do? Then he washed his face and came out and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. <laughs> the one thing that they kept him away from, the one thing that he had. They took away fellowship, they put him in a pit with no water and they ate without him and he brings them all together. He sends them back to get the last brother and so they can all be together and he says, serve the food. There is a picture, is there not, of fellowship here. Serve the food. And they served him by himself and then them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. Isn't that interesting? The Egyptians saw themselves as separate from the Hebrews, better than the Hebrews. They were, they, they were, they were greater than them. And so therefore, they couldn't just eat with them. You, you can't just eat with us. You're not one of us. You see, that lack of fellowship, that separation, is seen in not being able to feast together. Verse 33, And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. He, in chapter 37, the youngest brother at the time, had nothing. And he gave his youngest brother a feast. You are supposed to contrast these together. Now this is a great illustration of how feasting and fellowship are linked together. So when we have a grand feast put on by a king, then we have the concept of kingly wealth, kingly extravagance, kingly power. And also with feasting, we have the, the, the concept of fellowship. So when you or I 
get to go and feast with a king, that is something special. Because the Egyptians wouldn't even have food with the, with the Hebrews. So if we can feast with the king, oh wow, that is a special thing. So when we come to the book of Exodus, which is where I want you to turn next, and we turn to Exodus chapter 24, Exodus 24, we have in Exodus chapter 24 an astonishingly important chapter. And we're going to see why. It's really important that we do see why. In Exodus chapter 24, we have the, the inaugurating of the old covenant, the, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that, that God established with Israel through Moses that was the way that God oversaw them for centuries. And this covenant is established in chapter 24. Uh, I'll read through it from, um, well, maybe we'll start, no, let's, let's start from the beginning of the chapter because it's going to become relevant. He said to Moses, come up to Yahweh, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the <clears throat> elders, told you it would become relevant, become relevant again in a minute, of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near. Okay, who gets to go close to God? Moses. Who gets to stay away from God? Nadab, Nadab Abihu, and the 70 elders. Okay? Can we just be really clear on that point? Because it's going to become very, very important. Moses is allowed to go close to God, but they are not. It says that clearly, right? Okay, let's proceed. Moses came and told the people all the words of Yahweh and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. In other words, we are taking the law upon ourselves. We are, we are responsible to keep the law. They're responsible to keep the law and the consequences should they not. Remember, the Mosaic covenant, unlike most other covenants, was a conditional covenant. It was a conditional covenant. Hence, and while we're talking about feasting, the oft-repeated thing I've said in the book of Isaiah, but Isaiah points the covenant back to them and says, you were told that if you were obedient, you would get to feast in the land of milk and honey, but if you were disobedient then you yourselves will be consumed. That has been a reoccurring theme in the book of Isaiah. Eat or be eaten. Obedient, enjoy the land, or be taken out. Eat or be eaten. Used in the context of food and feasting. And they are taking upon themselves that responsibility. And Moses wrote down the words of Yahweh. He rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain. Where are they? They're at the foot of the mountain. It's important the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that Yahweh has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. So, this section begins with the people saying, we're going to keep the law, and then it comes here again, and he said, they say, we will keep the law. And in the middle of that, we have the sacrifices, the animal sacrifices are there as blood, as a warning, as a statement, the cutting of a covenant that they are going to be obedient to this law. And half of that blood has been poured on the altar. Who does the altar represent? God. And he will keep his side of it. And now what happens to the other half that were in basins? 
Verse 8, Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. There's 12 pillars representing the 12 tribes. There's representatives from each of those tribes. And now Moses is throwing the other half of the blood on them. This is not like the covenant with Abraham. Do you remember the covenant with Abraham? Abraham was there and there's a covenant. And the covenant is supposed to be animals sliced up. And then you walk through the middle of those animals. And you, the weaker party, are reminded of what will happen to you if you don't keep the, your agreement with the mightier party. And the weaker party, Abraham, is put into a deep sleep. And God comes down and he visibly passes through the animals. And he says, this is on me. Unconditional covenant. This is the opposite. Half the blood is on the altar, and the other half is now being thrown out to the 12 pillars and the people there representing the 12 tribes of Israel. The blood is on you. You've twice said you're going to keep the law. It's a great passage. I'm getting distracted, but it's a great passage. Anywho, uh, then look what happens. Uh, he threw on the people, behold, the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So now the covenant's been cut. Now look what happens as soon as the covenant's been cut. Then Moses and Aaron... Nadab and Abihu and, the 70, and 70 of the elders went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief of men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and they ate and drank. It seems as if they're in the presence of God. But of course they're not, because we were told right at the beginning of the chapter that they weren't to come close to God. And yet here they are, seemingly in the presence of God. What's going on? The key is in the word beheld. What is happening to them here is what happened to Isaiah in Isaiah 6. And I read this for years, and I never saw the connection here. I never saw that... This is a vision. They're, they're, they're having a heavenly vision. They're having a vision of the future. They're seeing God in his glory like Isaiah 6. And I was so excited about it. I discovered, I told my wife, and she's like, yeah, I'd always read it that way. <laughs> kind of put me in my place. But I was excited, and maybe you're not as clever as her either, and you can be excited like me that you've seen it now as well. But they weren't allowed to approach. They weren't allowed to come close. And so what's clearly happening here in the word saw in verse 10 and in the word beheld in verse 11, more so, slightly different uh, variant of that word saw, what, what it's talking of is it's talking of them beholding God in a vision. Okay? Now, when we understand contextually that they could not draw near to God, when we understand contextually in the book of Exodus that Moses wasn't even allowed, even he wasn't allowed to see God's face, or he would surely die, then them here, not just seeing God's glory, but sitting and eating with him, is clearly a futuristic vision. And by the way, when we look at Isaiah 6, there are elements of this going on here that he is seeing a similar vision. In fact, he's perhaps seeing something more clearly. They are seeing God. So who is seeing God? They're see who's seeing God? The vision is seen by Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. Okay? And his hand is not on them. Hand of God referencing his power. In other words, like Isaiah, who realized, I am a man of unclean lips, in the, people, the midst of a people of unclean lips, and I am undone, I, I'm screwed, I should be dead, here comes the hot coal, it's all over. He was not harmed. In the same way, 
Moses and the other leaders, God didn't lay his hand on them. But rather than that, what did God do instead of laying his hand on them? He ate with them. See, what's going on here is this. That God is making a covenant with Israel. And as that covenant is made, God gives the leaders a glimpse of the future. And he says, this is how it's going to be one day. Right now you have a covenant that involves the killing of animals and sacrifice. You're, you're essentially giving me a feast. There's an element as you eat the offerings that you are feasting with me in this very distant sense. We're separated by sin. But what is coming is this. That one day you will behold my glory and we will eat together. That's what's coming. Isn't that magnificent? That's feasting. And so, and, and this whole theme runs through Exodus. We don't need to turn there. But when they have the golden calf worship a little bit later on in chapter 32, in chapter 32 and verse 6, they rose early the next day. They offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings. And this is with the golden calf. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Playing being a term that is, has sexual connotations. They were basically engaging in false worship. There is contained in the Old Covenant, one last thing before we leave Exodus, there is contained within the Old Covenant the concept of not just any covenant relationship, but a covenant relationship that is closely linked to marriage. Now that's very clear in the Old Testament from the book of Hosea. Hosea is told to go out and marry a prostitute. A woman of ill repute. And she betrays him. And she commits adultery. She goes back to her wicked ways. And so Hosea is to learn how Israel has treated God with their spiritual adultery. Because God's covenant relationship with Israel is like a marriage. And so when they're unfaithful in the book of Ezekiel, God talks of his separation from them in terms of a divorce. And he speaks of his restoration with them in terms of a remarriage. And of course, when we come to the New Testament, we see that all of this was a shadow. Because understanding marriage to be a representation of God's covenant relationship with Israel is kind of almost there, but it's a shadow of what it really is. Because marriage always, from the very beginning, was supposed to be a picture of the ultimate covenant relationship. The new covenant, sealed not by the blood of animals thrown at the foot of Sinai, but by the blood spilled of Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. That's the ultimate covenant relationship. That's what marriage represents. And that's why Paul speaks about the church being the bride of Christ. Oh my goodness, we've got all sorts of themes here, haven't we? We have the kingship of a feast. We have the fellowship of a feast. And when we have the king coming into fellowship with, with, with lesser creatures then there is throughout the scripture this covenant relationship between the late, lesser and greater parties that God has and this covenant relationship will ultimately be seen in us somehow being redeemed and reconciled with God, sin being dealt with and us finally being able to feast with our God face to face. And so let us turn back to the book of Isaiah. 
And before you shift to chapter 25, I want to take you on a little bit of a journey through a little bit more. Why don't we start in chapter 2 of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 2, after the first round of condemnation, chapter 1 ends with the whole theme of Zion. Notice the use of Zion as a term for Israel here. Because Zion is the place where redemption is ultimately accomplished. Once they have been redeemed, they fellowship with him on Zion, right? Zion shall be redeemed by justice in chapter 1 and verse 27. And so as that redemption brings chapter 1 to an end, we see the results in chapter 2. And in chapter 2 and verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established on the highest of the mountains... It shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come to it and say, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. And so we have redemption for Israel, and Israel will worship God on the mountain, Mount Zion. And Isaiah tells us something really quite radical. He says, other nations, not just the Jews, but Gentiles will say, we're going to worship the Jewish God too, the God of Jacob. We're going to go and worship him as well. Oh, wow. That's kind of wild that they're going to get to do that. Presumably, in that last day temple, they're going to be sitting in the court of the Gentiles, right? Do you remember in the temple, in Jesus' day, there was the inner part of the temple, but the Gentiles weren't allowed there. They were on the outskirts in the court of the Gentiles. Then when we come to chapter 4 of Isaiah, we see that that time of restoration again, chapter 4 verse 2, the branch of the Yahweh shall be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and the honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. And so we have this final redemption. Look at verse 5. The Yahweh will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her, her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. So we will have... Oh, and by the way, there's, there's a reference here to a refuge and shelter in verse 5. And that's... Refuge is what we saw in chapter 25. You can turn back there now and verse 4. The refuge, the, the shelter from the storm, the shade from the heat. It's talking about that same time. So the kingdom is going to have the redeemed going to Mount Zion and even Gentiles will be able to come. But as Isaiah gives us that radical truth, the Jews would still think that the Gentiles had some sort of lesser privilege. Now look what Isaiah does in chapter 25 and verse 6. What he teaches us is utterly astounding. To the Jewish mind, this was astounding. He takes the concept of Gentiles coming to worship God in chapter 2 and chapter 4. And elsewhere, we've seen it elsewhere in in Isaiah as well. And he takes the concept of that intimate fellowship of feasting in Exodus 24... And they come together in chapter 25 and verse 6. On this mountain, which mountain? Mount Zion, short, near context. But also further back, chapter 2, chapter 4, Mount Zion is where the final worship will be done. On that mountain, I will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. The Gentiles will not be on the outskirts. 
Moses and the elders will be in the glory of God as seen in Exodus 24. But the radical thing is, is that Gentiles will be invited to the feast as well. Man, you know, you know this stuff from your New Testament parables. And that's where we're going to be moving to next time. Because I can see that I'm out of time. And it's a late night. And we're all tired. So I will wrap things up. But what I have done is I've shown you how historically we go through... And I've only given you just little glimpses, tiny glimpses. There's a whole bunch more you can see. But I've shown you how feasting as a theme is being brought to a new dimension in in Isaiah 25 and verse 6. That here, at the final day of of the day of the Lord, or the end of the day of the Lord, not the final day, but the end of the day of the Lord, the kingdom is going to begin. They're rejoicing over the fallen nations, and there's going to be feasting. But it's not just that nations have fallen, but many among the nations, from all the nations, will be redeemed, and they don't just get to go and worship God on the mountain. They get to actually feast with him. They get to have the same intimate fellowship that was promised only, not just to the, even to the Jews, but to the Jewish leaders. That there will be this feasting and this celebrating. But the, the, the revelation that Isaiah brings to this point is something that, um, is something that doesn't end with Isaiah. And he, he had talked about feasting earlier, chapter 5 and verse 11, and that final judgment in chapter 5. He'd said, Woe to those who rise early in the morning, they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp and tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of Yahweh or see the works of his hand. You see, Israel, they feasted and they celebrated in what they should not have feasted in and celebrated in. But one day, they will delight in God's hand, and they will feast with him. But the radical thing of Isaiah is that the Gentiles and the nations will feast with them. That they too will have intimacy with God. That they too will be welcomed to the table of the, table of the king. What's that? Oh, it's a car. Sorry, car outside. They too will be welcomed to the feast of the king. But as I said, Isaiah is not the end of this story. And what we will do next time, because there's a lot more here, believe it or not, we will talk, uh, we'll get to verse 7, which is another uh, incredibly important verse. But first of all, we will continue our journey to see where feasting goes. Because when we're looking at what's happening in this verse, it doesn't end here. Feasting continues on. We have parables about the feasting. And ultimately, we will see the feasting at the wedding feast of the Lamb. The wedding feast of the Lamb in Revelation 19 is what's being described here. And that's where we're going to go next time. So, we'll leave it there and then we'll come back. And then we might even next time get to verse 7 when we'll jump back to the eternal state very briefly. But let's pray for now. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this passage of scripture. Father, may we be thankful that we get to eat and to fellowship and to feast together. But may we be more thankful that we have fellowship with you and that one day our fellowship will be complete. That our sin will be dealt with, our redemption will be complete and we will be able to feast with you. 
to have the most beautiful and intimate fellowship with you. Where there will be no more pain, where there will be no more tears, where all things will be made right. And we will be united with the bridegroom, our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. How we long for that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.